So as we enter to Isaiah chapter 41 this morning, just remember where we have been within the context of this letter. Israel is in exile in the nation of Babylon because of their disobedience to God. Remember back in Isaiah 39, King Hezekiah, in an act of foolishness, strikes up an alliance with Babylon because he thinks that they will help him in his battle against the Assyrians. And of course, Babylon turns on Judah, and on two separate occasions, the Jews are forced out of their homeland into exile in Babylon. The first taking place in 597 B.C., and the second in 586 B.C., which is the date that you're more familiar with probably, because that is the date when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And God's people at this moment have lost hope, and they are questioning whether or not God truly cares for them. And Isaiah 40 reminded us of two important principles. Number one, God will be faithful to his covenant people because he is a God who keeps his word. And then last week we learned that God can be faithful to his covenant people because he is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise creator and sustainer of the universe. And he cares for his nation in spite of their exile in Babylon. So as we approach Isaiah 41 today, we are reminded of these three truths as we walk through this passage together. Number one, Yahweh, the one true God, is the author of world history. Number two, exile does not make God unfaithful. And number three, idols prove God's superiority. So again, Yahweh is the author of world history. Exile does not make God unfaithful. And number three, idols actually prove God's superiority. So as you look at the beginning of Isaiah 41, specifically the first seven verses, it is a courtroom scene. We are to imagine ourselves in a court of law. Now, I love a good courtroom drama. I don't know about you. Perry Mason is a classic show. I know it's far before my time, but you will be hard-pressed to find a better show than Perry Mason. That dude is a phenomenal attorney. Now, I know he's an actor, but nevertheless. But Jack McCoy, off Law and Order, is a close number two. I love a good courtroom drama. And here in these seven verses, these first seven verses, we are invited into this courtroom. Look at what it says in verse 1. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. But here, God is not speaking to Israel in verse 1. Instead, he is speaking to all of the nations. This would be everyone that is not Israel. Everyone that is not a part of the covenant faithful people. The coastlands, which is the language used here, is used throughout the book of Isaiah to reference all Gentile nations. These foreign nations are told here to listen to me in silence. Now in our court of law, we have the prosecution, we have the defense attorneys, we have the jury, we have the judge... And then we have the crowd in the courtroom watching. They all have different functions within the life of the trial. 
They're comprised of different people. But in God's courtroom, we must understand that he functions with all of those capacities. He is the prosecutor. He is the defense attorney. He is the judge. And he is the jury. And when he calls the nations to approach him, he isn't asking them to craft an argument before him. Instead, he will be the one to provide the argument. And the question is, will these foreign nations believe that Yahweh is the one true God, or will they continue to turn to their idols? And as you look in verses 2 through 4, we have an implicit reference here to Cyrus, the first emperor of the Persian Empire. And if you're familiar at all with the biblical narrative, you know that Cyrus is a key character in God's plan for his people. He is the one who actually awakens the Israelites to leave Babylon and return back to their homeland. We have this description in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, that's important, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus Cyrus, king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. We see from Ezra's description here. Don't miss what Ezra tells us. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So in other words, even though God's people are in exile because of their own disobedience, God will use another foreign ruler, Cyrus, to awaken his people and charge them to return back to their homeland and begin the process of rebuilding. The foreign nations here in Isaiah 41, they are fearful of this man named Cyrus and what he might do to them. And they need to be reminded that Cyrus is ultimately a pawn that God uses to orchestrate his purposes for his people in the world. The nations, that is, all of those that are not in Israel, they needed to know that Assyria was not the author of world history. Babylon is not the ruler of world history. Persia is not the world power. God is using all of these foreign nations to both discipline his people and restore his people. Now keep in mind, as Isaiah is making this prophecy here in chapter 41, Cyrus hasn't done any of these things yet. Isaiah is prophesying that they will one day happen. So the nations are to take this prophecy that Isaiah is making and consider it with the hope that he will affirm the answer to the question that he poses in verse 4. Look at what it says. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The proper 
response to the realization that Yahweh is orchestrating events through Cyrus, in theory, should lead the nations to put their trust in Yahweh as the one true God. If this prophecy is happening, and Isaiah is saying it is the Spirit of the Lord that will stir up Cyrus to allow God's people to return back to Jerusalem. If this is in fact true, then all of the nations of the world should bow down and worship Yahweh as the one true ruler. But look at verses 5 through 7. This is not what happens. Here is what the nations do. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What is happening here? The nations respond to the message of God's sovereignty over the nations, not by bowing down and worshiping him, but by creating idols. They create more of their man-made gods. They gather the craftsmen and the goldsmith and they create statues with a strong base so that they can bow down and worship them. The nations in their times of confusion do not turn to God, they turn to their idols. Now let's be careful that we do not gloss over what we see in these verses. Because it would be very easy of us to look at verses 1 through 7 and dismiss it and say, well, these are, these are pagans. These are not believers. This is not God's chosen people. Of course they're going to bow down to idols in times of fear and in times of uncertainty. And while you know we don't have many statues in our house that we bow down to and worship, when things get out of control in our own lives, though, what are we prone to turn to for comfort? And security. We turn to food. We turn to Netflix. We turn to our family and friends. We turn to our favorite hobbies, our bank accounts, our favorite vacation spots. So while we might not have these idols constructed and made with hands, we all look for comfort and peace in things other than God. So in that regard, we're no different than the many foreign nations that Isaiah is speaking to here. And of course, God has given us all of the things that I just mentioned to be enjoyed. It's a part of his goodness and his common grace towards us. But none of those things can alter or change what God has willed for his people. So let us heed the example we're given of the nations here in verses 1 through 7. As God argues with them and tells them, I'm going to use a foreign ruler to restore my people to their homeland. Bow down and worship me because of it. Instead, they get busy crafting their own man-made idols. May we pray that the Spirit would train us not to turn to all of the other things that God has given us, but that we would turn to Him first and foremost in our times of uncertainty, in our times of fear and in confusion. So number one, Yahweh is the author of world history. Everything that happens, not only within Isaiah, but within our world today, happens because he allows it to. Remember last week in Isaiah 40, the nations are like a drop in the bucket compared to our God. But number two in this passage, 
the Israelites themselves need to be reminded that exile does not make God unfaithful to them. In contrast to the nations in verses 1 through 7, Isaiah now turns his attention back to God's covenant people. It was God who sought out in the very beginning in Genesis 12, Abraham. This is a reminder here of God's election of Israel. His choosing a people for himself. In Genesis 12, when God speaks to Abram, here's what he tells him. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Isaiah reminds Israel here that in the same way he took Abraham and his family and told him to leave his home and provided for him, he will also provide for every generation that follows after him. He will be faithful to Israel even in the midst of exile. And now we approach the verse that we just shared with our children earlier. Verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Israel needs to be reminded here that yes, they are in a place that is not their home. Yes, they feel abandoned, confused, and afraid. But remember, God's promises to his people were not just dependent on them being in Jerusalem. Because so much of the history of the Old Testament is God's people not in Jerusalem. The temple is not even constructed in the biblical narrative until we get into the time of First and Second Kings. And then they, they spend some time there, and then they're kicked out again. And when they return, they begin the process of rebuilding the temple. God's promises to his people are not just accurate or reliable when we're gathered in this room on Sunday. They're reliable all of the time, no matter where we might be. The tabernacle itself was constructed so that God's spirit could go with the people as they moved from location to location. Yes, the temple was constructed so that the Spirit of God could have a permanent dwelling place. But the destruction of the temple was not the destruction of Yahweh himself. He was always present with his people. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy reiterates that God still loves and cares for his people. All of the prophets of the Old Testament are giving a message that comes from God himself. He is not silent even when they are in the midst of exile. In verses 11 and 12, Isaiah reminds the people, no matter who comes against you, no matter who wages war against you, you need to be reminded they are nothing before the Lord. Three times we see in verse 10, verse 13, and verse 14, Isaiah says, fear not, fear not, fear not pastor that I served under in New Orleans had a saying that's always stuck with me. He said, you are bulletproof until God is done with you. And that is a reality, brothers and sisters. We have no reason to fear. In verses 15 and 16, we have this image that Isaiah gives us of a threshing sledge. Now, 
We're not that familiar with a threshing sledge, so let me explain. This instrument was made of heavy timber with sharp stones or pieces of metal driven into the underside. It was an instrument that the farmers used to separate the wheat from the chaff. Threshing in Isaiah is a metaphor for judgment. God used Israel as his threshing instrument, his threshing tool to exercise his judgment on the nations of the world. When Israel had victory in the battle of Jericho in the book of Joshua, when Gideon defeated the Midianites with only 300 men in Judges, when Goliath was slain by a small insignificant shepherd boy, It reminded God's people that ultimately Yahweh is the one winning all of these battles. Yahweh is the one true God. This threshing instrument is only as effective as the farmer who uses it and the sharpness of its teeth. God is both the farmer and the teeth. Israel is his instrument that he uses throughout the Old Testament to exercise his judgment over unrighteousness. And in verses 17 through 20, we find all of these allusions to the Exodus period. In verse 17, it says the people are thirsty and they're seeking out water, but God will provide for them, Isaiah says. If you're hearing this as an Israelite, your mind goes back. To Exodus chapter 17, this is what it says. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. One chapter earlier in Exodus chapter 16, what are the people complaining about? They're hungry. God gives them manna and quail. In the book of Jonah, he is complaining because it's hot and the sun is beating down on him. So what does God do? He provides a plant to cover Jonah. When God calls on Gideon to go and defeat the Midianites, what does Gideon ask for? All right, God, I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. God does it. And Gideon says, I'm not satisfied. Do the opposite. So the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. And then Isaiah reminds us, rivers in the bare heights, fountains in the valleys, cedars in the wildernesses, cypresses in the desert. God has always provided for his people. He has always cared for his people. He has always loved his people, even when they don't feel like it's true. God's people in exile knew all of these stories. Because the Israelites were much better than we are at passing down these stories. 
from one generation to the next. No matter how bad of an Israelite you might have been, you knew the story of the Exodus. You knew that God provided water and manna and quail for his people. You knew the story of Gideon and how God provided miraculous victory for him, even with just 300 men. So as I said a few weeks ago, we need to be reminded to not put our trust in our feelings, but in God's word. Allow him to show you from the pages of scripture how over and over and over again he has remained faithful to a faithless people. The Israelites messed up time and time again. They doubted God's faithfulness. You and I mess up over and over again. We doubt God's faithfulness. And Isaiah wants the people to see and for us to remember the lesson that he gives them here in verse 20 when he says that they may see and know, they may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. As the Israelites are in Babylon, away from their homeland, wondering if God truly cares about them, scared, afraid, not sure what the future holds. Isaiah is reminding them, God is faithful. God provides for his people. Don't look at your circumstances. Remember back in the history of God's people over and over again and allow God's word to minister to your heart that he is faithful because he's faithful to his covenant and he always will be. Number three, Ultimately, idols prove God's superiority. As we finish out this chapter, in verses 21 to 29, we move back into the courtroom. He invites the nations before him to bring, to bring proof that their idols are superior to him. And how will these nations prove that the idols that they worship are superior to Yahweh. Here's how they're going to prove it. Can they report about former things that have happened? Are they able to declare things that will one day happen? The answer is they can't. And God knows this. Because Yahweh, the one true God, has a characteristic that doesn't describe any of us and describes no other God in the history of the world. And that is, our God is omniscient. Here's what that means. God, this is going to blow your mind. You're going to leave with a headache today. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Let me just be silent for a moment. Think about that. Let me say it again. God fully knows himself and all things both actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. So God doesn't have to use reason to reach conclusions. You know why? He is reason. God doesn't have to sit there and count the number of hairs on your head. He knows it in an instant. 
And some of you have no hair, so that's really easy for him. He knows everything that has ever happened and that ever will happen. And he can give precise detail on all of it in one simple act. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar would be the pawn that he would use to discipline his people and drive them into exile. And he knew it at the exact same time that he also knew that he would use Cyrus as the one to restore his people back into Jerusalem. And he knew all of this before the foundation of the world. And he didn't construct this plan because he always knew that it would happen. It's amazing to think about our God. So he says to these idols, show me that you can do these things. Show me that you can tell me everything that has happened throughout world history. Show me that you can tell me everything that will happen hundreds and hundreds of years from now. But the answer is, they can't. And the response from God through Isaiah is this. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination, he says, is he who chooses you. The superiority of God over idols is proven in this passage through the power that God gives Cyrus. Imagine this courtroom setting and God speaking to the nations as I read these verses. Here's what he says. I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter threads clay, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. The nations were crafting idols to worship. Because they feared the coming of this future empire, Persia, and its leader, Cyrus, in verses 1 through 7. While Yahweh is the one who actually stirs up the spirit of Cyrus to bring God's people back from exile. Cyrus is the herald of of good news for God's people here. God will use a foreign ruler from a foreign land as the instrument to bring his chosen people back into Jerusalem. Which is a reminder to us that God can use whomever he wants, whenever he wants, to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish when he desires to do so. Now in my mind, in my flesh, the story would have been better if God had raised up some wonderful leader within the nation of Israel, some godly warrior to overthrow the Babylonians and overthrow the Persians and to lead God's people back to Israel. Some man-made warrior that the people could look to and say, this is the king that will bring us back into Jerusalem. But in God's wisdom, he knew that his people couldn't handle that. Because you know what his people would have done? They would have bowed down to that earthly ruler. They would have said, this is our king. And guess what would have happened? They would have forgotten about Yahweh. And you know how God knows this? Because the history of the Old Testament tells us this is what the Israelites do. When Moses is up on the mountain, 
receiving the commandments from Yahweh himself, what do his people do? They construct an idol to worship. So instead, here's God's plan. In order to ensure that he gets the glory and that he would be the one who is magnified and praised over this, he uses a foreign ruler, Cyrus, as a reminder to his people that no earthly ruler has more power, authority, or dominion than Yahweh himself. The courtroom scene concludes with God looking around at all of these idols in the room who cannot see, who cannot speak, who cannot hear, and cannot act. And God's concluding remarks are as follows. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The take home for you and me today is that idols cannot deliver. They cannot provide what we need. They can't see, they can't walk, they can't talk, and they can't act. God knew that no idol could properly care for his people. So before he created the world, he knew he would send not a statue, but instead a son who could walk, who could talk, who proclaimed a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus lived the sinless life that we could not live and died the bloody death on the cross for his people. So he died as our substitute. There is no idol in the history of the ancient world who was ever willing to die for the sins of the people because they were created by man. They were constructed with human hands. Once an idol was destroyed or broken, guess what had to happen? A man had to come and invent another one. So the craftsmen and the goldsmith, they would gather together and they would construct another idol so that the people could worship. But when Jesus died, God himself brought him back to life. Man was not involved in any way in the resurrection of Jesus. It was an act of God's love toward the world. We have that great story in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. When Paul has made his way into Ephesus and he's proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the people there. And there are some silversmiths, some idol makers in Ephesus that are beginning to get agitated with Paul. You know why? Because they were not able to sell their little statues the way they once could. Because Paul had come in and said, why are you wasting your time with all of these idols? Come and worship Jesus, the one true God. So they riot and they throw Paul out of town. Because idols cannot provide forgiveness of sin. And these men's livelihood was at stake on them selling these false statues. Isaiah is reminding his people as he reminds the nations... That no idol can provide. No idol can offer forgiveness of sin. Instead, it's a real person. Jesus himself, who came 
and lived and died and was resurrected. For any that will turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone, they will be reconciled to a holy God. He is the only one who can deliver us from our sins and give us resurrection life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded of your goodness towards us in the sending of your Son. And may we heed the the warning in this passage that you give to the nations about the futility of idols. We We can continue to build them and construct them, but they can never offer forgiveness of sin. Forgive us when we turn to our idols for comfort, for peace. If there are any here that are not in Christ today, who are worshiping the things of this world, I pray that your spirit would draw them to yourself, that they would turn from their sin, place their faith in Christ alone. We thank you for this prophecy that you have given to us. May you use it to transform our hearts and minds. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.